0: Psalm 63, give ear to the reading of God's holy word. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. Let's pray and ask him, to bless his word and teach us it this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you once again that you've given us your scriptures, that they are a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that uh, by it you make yourself known to us, especially through the gospel of your Son, that we might be reconciled to you and have life by your Spirit in Christ. And uh, we pray that you would teach us your word this morning, give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Uh, Build us up in our faith and convert the lost. For it's in Christ's name that we pray and for his glory. Amen. Well, our text this morning uh, is a psalm of David. As we just read, the title or superscription gives us a small uh, glimpse into his circumstances when he wrote it. And what does it say there? It says he wrote it, quote, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now that David was in the wilderness means that he was in dire straits. This wasn't a camping trip. He was in great need. He lacked all the usual comforts of home, including uh, one that we might not think of, but he clearly talks about it, that he was missing out on the public worship of God's people and the means of grace there in the tabernacle, and that was something that weighed on him. And Charles Spurgeon, uh, already mentioned this morning uh, by Rob, he says of of this particular psalm, he says, David did not leave off singing because he was in the wilderness. David did not leave off singing because he was in the wilderness, but he carefully made his worship suitable to his circumstances and presented to his God a wilderness hymn when he was in the wilderness. So he didn't say, well, I'm out here in the middle of nowhere. I'm on the run for my life. I'm away from the tabernacle, the right place of worship. No, he says, hey, I worship God whether I'm there or whether I'm here out in the middle of, of nowhere. Isn't it comforting to us to know that our God, our God, has given us, uh, by the pen of his servant uh, David, a psalm that we too can sing in our wilderness times. Wilderness times aren't times that we stop worshiping our God. He hasn't left us, God hasn't left us unequipped or unprepared to worship him when we find ourselves like David in a dry and weary land. Like David, you and I don't have to leave off singing when we're in the wilderness. Matthew Henry, that great Puritan Bible commentator, also writes of the psalm. He says, The best and dearest of God's saints and servants may sometimes have their lot cast in a wilderness, which speaks them lonely and solitary, desolate and afflicted, wanting, wandering and unsettled and quite at a loss uh, what to do with themselves. But even then, even then, it is our duty and interest to keep up a cheerful communion with God. We still what what is the first question of the shorter catechism what's the chief end of man what is it to glorify God and to enjoy him forever even even in the wilderness we are called to glorify and enjoy God even when in a time of trial in the wilderness now even if if you may be now in a in a kind of wilderness in your life not a literal one obviously you might be uh, you know wildernesses take many many kinds of forms many different uh forms and if you find yourself possibly enduring a time of spiritual dryness, we all go through those from time to time. If that describes you this morning, this psalm has a word or two of instruction for you and for me. And maybe at this time you're not presently in that kind of a condition. Maybe you read that, that you know superscription about the wilderness and you think, well, that doesn't really sound like me right now. But even if that's the case, even if by God's grace you're not presently in that condition, uh, you might one day soon. And so read this psalm and take this psalm to heart to prepare you uh, for how you might be prepared in advance, how you might worship God in a time of wilderness in your own life as well. This this text does not, in my opinion, divide itself up neatly into an outline as the previous psalm that we looked at last month did. Uh, But I found at least three clear themes that I think run throughout this psalm and are the focus of this psalm. And so we're going to look at those, Lord willing, in this order. We're going to see first... The pursuit of God, the desire for God, the pursuit of God. The second one, the love of our God. And thirdly, the praise of our God. So the pursuit of our God, the love of our God, and the praise of our God. The first thing we find, I think, in the psalm is right at the beginning in verse 1, and that's the pursuit of God, the desire for God. And not just the pursuit of God, but one key word, the pursuit of our God the pursuit of our God. Look at verse 1. David says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly or early, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now remember, David was in the wilderness, a a literal wilderness, right? Uh, He was probably in a place that really was a dry and weary land that had no water. But that wasn't, that really wasn't his focus, was it? It's almost as if that outward circumstance of being in the wilderness with no water and things reminded him of his deeper need, of his deeper and spiritual wilderness at the times he was in, maybe even at this time when he wrote the Psalm. No doubt he was in need of actual water. Again, this wasn't, this wasn't a sanctified camping trip. He needed water to sustain his life. But was water, as much as he needed it to live, was water his greatest thirst? It would have been my greatest thirst, at least would have been the one on my mind the most, but it wasn't his. David's greatest thirst was a thirst of his soul. His thirst was for God himself. David's greatest desire, even in a time of great trial and affliction, his greatest desire was for God, his God. That's what David wanted more than anything else, more than even his outward circumstances being fixed or alleviated. Now put yourself in David's shoes. If you were in that kind of a situation, what would your prayer be? I know what mine would probably be. It wouldn't be the same as David's. It wouldn't be right. Most of us would probably pray for a quick solution to our problems, a quick resolution to our misery that we have in our outward circumstances. Nothing wrong with praying for that. But would it be the first thing? That would probably be the first thing that I would pray for. That's not what David does, does, is it? Is that where David begins? Does David say, hey God, I'm in trouble, fix it? Doesn't mean he didn't pray for that, but he, he prayed for God himself. His thoughts and his prayers, his desires turned to God himself first before it turns, before he turned to God's blessings and God's help. Notice David doesn't just desire and pursue after God, but he says, my God in verse one. You know, sometimes those little little tiny words, these personal pronouns, uh, are the key. I think the personal pronouns you find in this psalm are at the very heart of the psalm. They're the key to understanding this psalm rightly. Eleven times in this psalm, David uses the word my here. This is personal for him. His his God wasn't just God, it was my God. It wasn't just that David had a desire for God. His soul, his mouth, his lips, he's... he's really uh, pursuing God with all that he is there. In verse 1 he says, you are my God. No less than 17 times in the psalm, on, in only 11 verses, David refers to God by saying, you or your. If you read the psalm, it's like it's like a drumbeat. You, 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 your, 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 all throughout the psalm. The psalm, he's, he's focused on God, and it's reflected in what he says throughout the psalm. You know, that's that's where a true hunger and thirst after God has to start. Is God your God? Can you, can you rightly call God, not just God, which He is, can you call Him your God? Can you call upon Him as your God? You know, it could be that that's the real reason if you find that you don't have a hunger and thirst after God is because God isn't yet your God. You haven't been reconciled to him through faith in Christ. You're still estranged from God and in your sins. You and I will never pursue God or hunger and thirster after God with all of our being unless we're first reconciled to him by faith in Christ. We have to be convinced and assured that God is 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 right, that we are right with him, that he is our God, and we are at peace with him before we would ever dare to pursue him. We'd be like, as we read in this morning In Exodus, and like what Rob read, even in Hebrews, we'd be like at the the foot of that mountain, afraid to come near, unless we know our God is reconciled to us. You know, the vast majority of people on this earth, even many professing Christians, make all kinds of other things their life's pursuit. They hunger and thirst after all kinds of things that can never really satisfy their hearts and their souls. People try to find meaning, peace, and satisfaction in all kinds of things, like possessions, like money. But money and possessions, as important as they may be, can never be enough. How much money is enough? We always want just what? Just a little bit more. It's never really enough. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 16, 26, What will it profit a man if he gains the what? The whole world. If you have everything, what does it profit if a man, a man, if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What's he saying? He's saying your soul, your eternal soul is of more value than all the things on this earth. The world is never enough. And think about that. The world, if you owned the world, it wouldn't be enough. It's been said, Uh, That Alexander the Great, when he had done all of his conquering, he looked around at his kingdom and it said that he wept for there were no more worlds to conquer. He did it all and it wasn't enough. It wasn't nearly enough. It did not satisfy the hunger of his soul because that wasn't what he was made for. People try to find meaning, peace and satisfaction in entertainment but those things are never enough either. Some of you know that I have the, uh, one of my many flaws is I'm a sports fan and I'm a long-suffering Philadelphia sports fan. Last February, I even know the date, February 4th, 2018, my my particular football team, the Philadelphia Eagles, finally won the Super Bowl for the first time in my entire life. They finally, you know, 50 plus years on this earth and all that waiting, they finally gave me one Super Bowl uh, to, to celebrate. And you know, I won't lie. I was pretty happy about that. My household, for the most part, was pretty happy about that. But that happiness lingered for a while. It, it, it didn't go away after a week. I was still pretty, you know, happy and grinning a few weeks and even months uh, later. Uh, but here we are, not even a year later, and they look to be on the verge of missing the playoffs. And the, that that kind of giddiness and ha- it's kind of gone. It's what have you done for me lately? It doesn't. It doesn't last. It doesn't fulfill. Thinking about entertainment, I think it it saddens me that many churches have bought into the idol of entertainment. They sought to model the worship of our God after secular entertainment. Prayer and worship, Rob mentioned that when he was up here a little while ago. Prayer and worship is often abbreviated, if not absent entirely. Why is that? I think because it's not entertaining. It's off-putting. It's not what people want to see or be involved in. The whole counsel of God is often exchanged for a superficial pep talk from a wannabe life coach. Instead of letting the word of God dwell on us richly in our singing, through praise and having the word of God in our praise, we often turn the church and the worship of the church into some kind of a rock concert, as if we're bored by God. David wasn't bored by God. We should not be bored by God. And we should not change the worship of a holy God who is a consuming fire into something because we think people might be bored and might not want to attend upon the worship of God. People also try to find meaning, peace, and satisfaction in the pursuit of pleasure. What does Hebrews 1125 talk about? It talks about the pleasures of sin for a season in the King James Version. Well, the, the pleasures of sin for a season are just that. They, oh, there's pleasure to it, but it's for what? It's for a season and it's sinful on top of that they are temporary at best they aren't fulfilling they bring many a bitter consequence in this life they bring many regrets not to mention shutting you out of the kingdom of God forever if you do not repent and turn to Christ by faith for salvation from them such things as well as many others promise us peace and satisfaction in our lives but they can never begin to deliver and why is that why, why is it impossible for possessions and pleasure and power and all these things that we think are so important? Why is it impossible for them to satisfy? It's because if I can quote St. Augustine, one of the opening things he says in his book called "The Confessions," he says, "Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee." We're not made for those things. Those things are small change. The things that we think are so important really aren't. When we can have God, and yet we settle for smaller things that don't satisfy. We must make God himself our desire. We have to make God our desire more than the blessings of God. You know, I don't know about you, but I confess that very often I, I want God's blessings without thinking about wanting God himself. It's almost as if sometimes we'd be satisfied with the blessings without having God at all. That should never be the case. It reminds me of the story in Exodus chapter 33 where we read the following. Exodus 33 verses 1 through 3. The Lord, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. God says, I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. And then here's what he he adds. But I will not go up among you. In other words, go take it. I'll send my angel. It'll all be yours. I will drive out all those seven uh, pagan peoples and you will inhabit the land that I promised. I'll keep my word. He says, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Here is the deal: you can have the promised land. It's almost like he's saying, "You can have heaven; I just won't be there." Deal? What did Moses say? Deal? You know, this, let's just get this over with. This—that's fine. We'll get to live forever, but you won't. No, he doesn't say that at all. This is what uh, this is what, what Moses says. In verses 15 to 16. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. We're not going to move. Don't, why bother? What's the point? For how, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses did not settle for the blessings of God without the, without the God of the blessings. Without God himself, the blessings were nothing. And that is how we should think of things as well. The promised land meant nothing to Moses without the presence and favor of God. Better to wander in the wilderness with God's presence and blessing than to enjoy milk and honey without it. That's Moses' perspective and that should be ours as well. Now do you see why David's heart was so bent on pursuing his God? God was his greatest good, and so he pursued him even in a place of wilderness. Whether David was in his palace in Jerusalem or wandering in the, in the wilderness in Judea, uh, his heart's desire was his God, for only his God could truly satisfy him. In pursuing his God, David says in verse 5 that his soul would what? Be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Or with fat and marrow. He's the, the greatest. Think about this. He's this would drive me kind of crazy if you if you don't have food, you don't have water, you're in the middle of nowhere. And David's talking about Thanksgiving feast. If I have my God, I've got the best spread I've ever had. My soul will be full. That's only if your hunger and thirst is really for God first and foremost. Well, that brings us to the second major theme of this psalm, found in verse three, and that theme is the love of God, the love of our God. David tells us the reason why his desire was was for God alone is what he says there in verse 3. These are probably the most memorable words of the psalm. He says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Spurgeon said that this was a reason for that which went before, that is verses 1 through 2, as well as for that which follows verses 4 through 11. What's he saying? He's saying this is kind of the hinge of the whole psalm. This, this, this verse, verse 3, and what David says here, is what makes the whole psalm click and tick. This is the heart of the psalm, and, and understanding verse 3 is really the key to understanding the psalm as a whole. It's because God's steadfast love is better than life that he'll praise him. It's because God's steadfast love is better than life. That's why his God was his pursuit above all things, even in the wilderness. The steadfast love of God, his covenant love, that's what it is. You know, When you read your Old Testament, if you're reading through, especially in the ESV, when, when you see the phrase steadfast love, it's almost always the, the translation of the Hebrew word kesed, which is steadfast love, or His his grace, his favor. It's His covenant love. It's, it's, if I could use the, the New Testament term, you know, we like to throw around the, around the word agape. You know, God's, God's, uh, God's love that is, is not with, it's without us having to earn it. It's His unmerited favor. That's the same kind of idea here with steadfast love. It's God's covenant love. It's His grace and mercy toward His people. And He says His covenant love for us is better than life itself. That's what David is talking about here. Here is a theme. If you think about this topic, you know we really don't have the time to even scratch the surface of this great theme. We could spend weeks and weeks talking about it. It's a, it's a theme found throughout Scripture. that The love of God meant more to David than his own life. That's why even in the wilderness, David could say he would bless God how long? As long as he lived. In other words, if I die out here, did David know for sure he was going to escape the wilderness I don't think he did I don't think he presumed upon it I think he by faith he saw God wasn't done with him yet but he was like as long as I live if I die here tonight in this desert place I'm going to praise you as long as I live as long as that because your steadfast love is better than life some things are more important than life itself and to David the most important thing was God himself what what's better than life People act as if things are better than life until it comes to having to choose them. Is is money better than life? The way we we set our our priorities, you'd think sometimes that it was. If you had, this is fantasy talk, but if you had billions of dollars, if you had all the money that you could never hope to begin to spend half of it, you would trade every last cent of that to keep living, if given the choice. If someone put a gun to your head and said, "Give give me all your money, or I'm going to kill you. You would give them all your money. If that were the choice. Because money's not better than life. Is pleasure better than life? You would think it was. The way so many spend their lives. And wreck their lives. Pursuing it. But pleasure is not better than life. Sinful pleasures and the pleasures of this passing world. Amount to nothing without the steadfast love of God. They don't compare to it. Lamentations chapter 3 verses 22 to 24, a familiar text to many of you, it says the steadfast love, same word the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases his mercies never come to an end, they are new when? Every morning great is your faithfulness and then he says, sounds like the (laughs) psalm, the Lord is my portion says my soul therefore I will hope in him Lamentations, I don't know if you know what that word means, but the the book that's what the book is about. It's about lamenting. It's about lamenting the fall of of Israel and Judah, uh, a time of of captivity. And what what does Jeremiah say? Steadfast love of God never ceases. Even in the midst of that, and he says, the Lord himself, the Lord is my portion. If you have the Lord, you have all things, even if you have nothing. Is God your God? Is his grace and favor toward you, his steadfast love toward you in Christ, your greatest desire and your greatest joy? God's steadfast love to you in Christ never ceases. His mercies toward you in him never come to an end. Every day brings a new and overflowing supply. That's why the Lord himself must be, as as Jeremiah says there, our portion No wonder Paul prayed in the book of Ephesians in chapter 3. When Paul prayed for the believers in Ephesus, what did he pray? He prayed this, that they would, quote, have strength to comprehend with all the saints uh, what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul prayed a lot of things for them. But when he prayed for them, he wanted them to grow. And how did, how did he pray for them to grow? That they would grow among all things, above all things, that they would grow to, to grasp the ungraspable. That they would grow in their grasp and knowledge of the love of God. And look, and think about the directions he talks about, the, the breadth and length and height and depth. It's like it's, it's a picture of infinity, isn't it? it? It just goes beyond our horizons for us to be able to see he says, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That should be our prayer for each other and for ourselves as well. No wonder David says that he remembered God upon his bed and meditated upon him in the watches of the night in verse 6. David thought much about God. He thought about God's many perfections, his power, his glory, his steadfast love and mercy. That's why David uh, delighted and meditated in God, and he meditated and delighted in the law of God, day and night, as he says in Psalm 1, verse 2. Do you want to grow in your knowledge of the steadfast love of God? That's our need. Do you want to grow in your knowledge of the steadfast love of God? Then you have to learn to delight in God and to delight in his word. It's in his holy word that God reveals himself to us more and more and teaches us about his steadfast love towards us in Christ. There are so many passages about this great topic, I I almost don't even know where to begin, but I've listed a few brief passages uh, just to get us started. First John, these are in no particular order. First John 4, 9 through 10, what does he say there? He says, In this is the love of God, or rather, in this the love of God was made manifest among us. Here's how God showed his love among us. How? That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We love him because he first, what? Loved us. And when he talks about loved us, what's he he mainly talking about? Sending his son to die for our sins as a propitiation for our sins, a sacrifice of atonement for our sins. Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who did what? Who loved me and gave himself for me. Romans eight thirty-seven to 39, a very familiar text. Paul says, no, in all these things, these things were like nakedness, danger, peril, sword, bad things. He says, in all these things, we are what? More than conquerors through him who loved us. That's shorthand mainly for the cross. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That, that whole section in Romans 8, like, what's Paul's main point? Nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Not even death can do that. You know, we could go on for hours probably just reading one text after another of Scripture that tells us of the steadfast love of God towards us in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, remember these things in the morning? When you get out of bed in the morning with your coffee, meditate on them in the watches of the night. If you have Trouble sleeping? Think on God. Think on His steadfast love to you as taught to you in the Scriptures and the Word of God. Don't just look at the Scriptures. Look at God's providence in your life. I know most of us, maybe maybe, maybe none of you keep diaries. I know everybody used to do that. But look back on, on the past days and years of your life and God's great faithfulness to you in the past. And learn from that. Remind yourself of that. We're going to look at that, do that very thing at the table here shortly. Of the Lord's Supper. It's reminding us of the steadfast love of God uh, that, that, can, that nothing can separate us from in Jesus Christ. And that brings us at least briefly to the third theme of the psalm, which is also found throughout Psalm 63, and that's the praise of our God. If God is our great desire and if his steadfast love to us in Christ is the cause for that great desire of him that it should be, that should also lead us to praising our God. For his steadfast love, Psalm one one thirty six verse one says, "Give thanks to the Lord for he is for he is good. Why? For his steadfast love endures forever." That psalm he repeats it over and over and over again. For his steadfast love endures forever. Why do we give thanks to God? Because his steadfast love to us endures forever. The more you and I grasp and remember the love and grace of our God and Jesus Christ towards us, the more the lesser things of this life will fade from you from view. And the more we will learn to praise Him above all else, if we prize God, we will praise God. That's what David does here in this psalm. And if that's the case, like David, you too will praise Him with your lips, verse 3. You will lift up your hands in His name, verse 4. Your soul will be satisfied, verse 5. Your mouth will praise Him, verse 5. The love of God leads us to praise Him with all of our being. David, David isn't just his soul, it's his flesh. It's his body and soul. Everything that made up David, that made David what it was, he would use to praise God for his steadfast love toward him. Even in the wilderness, everything in David, everything within him, praised God for his steadfast love. Such seeking after and praising of our God is also life-changing. Praise is not just some kind of add-on. It should be the thing that 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 drives our lives, It changes our lives, It leads us to live life in the light of the steadfast love of God. And that's what enables us, as David did here, to endure affliction for the name of Christ. David was enduring affliction in the wilderness because of his faithfulness to his Savior. And yet what does he do in the last two verses? He looks upon them in triumph. Why? Because of the steadfast love of God. He says, Those who seek to destroy my life, verse 9, shall go down into the depths of the earth, they shall be given over to the power of the sword they shall be a portion of jackals but the king shall rejoice in god all who swear by him shall exalt the mouths for the mouths of liars will be stopped that's Romans 8:37 in different words david knew he was more than a conqueror through him who loved him and we can know the same thing we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and because of that we too will rejoice in god and exalt in Him, as David says. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Lord our God, we give you praise and thanks that in Christ, by your great mercy and grace and steadfast love to us, your covenant love to us as your people, uh, that we can call you not just God, but our God, that we can call upon you as our Heavenly Father, our Savior, our Sanctifier, that your steadfast love is better than life, that nothing in all of creation can separate us from your steadfast love, that your mercies are new every morning all these things lord we give you praise and thanks for them lord Uh, we ask that you would work in us by your spirit that you would revive each one of us revive us as individuals and even as a church that we might not set our affections on lesser things that we would keep our eyes on you that we would seek you above all things and meditate upon your steadfast love to us in christ fill our hearts with your spirit and even as paul said in ephesians 3 that you would Help us to grasp the love of God, the height, the depth, the length, and width of the love of God in Christ that passes all understanding that we might be filled with the fullness of God. We pray that you would change our hearts, help us to to love you above all things, and to seek to know better and better your great love for us in Christ. And we pray that if anybody here does not yet know you, if anybody here this morning is still in their sins and cannot rightly call upon you as their God, that you might make today the day of their salvation, that they would look to Jesus Christ by faith, turn from their sins and look to him and have life in his name and be able to from from this day forth call upon you as their God and their Savior and their King. We pray all of this in the matchless and powerful name of Christ our Lord, who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.